when you lose everything, it's really hard to go through every year remembering them. Hey guys, it's JD Flynn here. Listen, that woman you just heard, her name is Natalie. Natalie's from Rwanda, and she lost more than 100 family members in the 1994 Rwandan genocide. Natalie's story is about loss, for sure, but it's also about forgiveness. This week on CNA Newsroom, we're talking about the three hardest words to say in the English language. I forgive you. We have three incredible stories about forgiveness. We'll hear from a survivor of clerical sexual abuse, then from the mother of James Foley, the American journalist beheaded by ISIS in 2014. But first, back to Natalie, who spoke with CNA's Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Michelle Arosa. Here's Michelle. Natalie Pureno is a Rwandan woman of Tutsi ethnicity. Her story is one of pain, loss, and the healing that only comes from faith in Christ. Growing up in Rwanda, Natalie's family faced challenges. They spent time in a refugee camp after the 1959 revolution. They faced hunger, and a few of her siblings were forced to quit school and work to help feed the family. But she says her memories of her childhood were still filled with joy, surrounded by her parents and 11 siblings, and sustained by a strong Catholic faith. We are not as poor as we are in Western countries. We had everything. We had each other. We had God. What else do do you want? In particular, Natalie is grateful for her parents. She recalls how they were generous with those in need, even when they struggled to make ends meet, how they led the family in praying a rosary every evening, and how they filled her childhood with love. I grew up in a, in a loving environment, in spite of civil wars. I don't know if you, you can put those two together. I think you can. Love can conquer hate. And that's what I had, unconditional love. Natalie would go on to marry an American who worked for Catholic Relief Services and to move to the United States. She was living in Baltimore in April of 1994 when she heard the news that the Rwandan president's plane had been shot down. This became the spark that ignited decades of ethnic tension dating back to Belgian colonialism. Members of the Hutu ethnic majority took up machetes and turned on their minority Tutsi neighbors, friends, and colleagues. In the 100-day genocide that followed, it is estimated that nearly one million people were killed. In the early days of the genocide, Natalie made frantic, long-distance phone calls to Rwanda, desperately hoping to hear that her family members were okay. But when phone service was eventually shut down in the country, she could only follow along with the news as the death toll continued to rise. Talking about helpless, it's beyond that. I don't have a vocabulary for what I felt. Maybe guilt? for being safe and they were not, I felt if maybe if I was there, since I'm younger and I, I'm 
I felt like I was, I, I knew some tricks. I could have fooled them that at least we'll have a few people who survived. Natalie was actually supposed to be in Rwanda for Easter that year. That was the plan. She would go home to Rwanda and then bring her mother back to the United States to live with her and her family in Baltimore. Natalie's father passed away before the genocide, so her mom had agreed to come and live with them. I called her on February 26, 1994. I said, Mom, I'm coming at Easter. No, don't come. I said, why? Why don't you save money and come at Christmas? I said, Mama, you keep pushing this. I need you to come. Oh, I did this and this and this with your siblings. Let me, I have a few things I have to finalize. I said, how is the political situation, Mama? Oh, the cows are good. The harvest is good. She will change subject. <laughs> God bless my mother. Well, a month and a half later, she was killed. She was trying to protect me from being slaughtered. Natalie's mom was killed in the genocide. So were seven of her 11 siblings and dozens of nieces, nephews, and cousins. In total, she lost more than 100 family members. The year following the genocide was a blur for Natalie. She was numb with trauma and guilt. The nightmares were frequent. She found herself in denial, wondering if her loved ones had somehow survived, even when she knew they were dead. She had to stop going to Mass for about a year. During the consecration, graphic images would flood her mind of the bodies piled up in Mass graves, of a church back home where people were murdered, blood staining the altar cloths. When you have a visual mind, you see every detail. Natalie prayed the rosary daily and told God that she loved him. Slowly, she found healing and was able to return to church. But the details of her mother's death still haunted her. Her cousin was there and recounted the scene to her later. They were running around, hiding in the swamps, with their rosaries, with their little Bible in the photo albums of their children. <laughs> because they were hoping to survive. She ran into this guy who was staying at my mom's house because he, he worked in my parents' field. And my mom told she was, oh, I know this guy, it's my kid. And she goes, oh, my son, it's you. But the man was a Hutu. He told Natalie's mom, old woman, don't waste my time. And my mom had such a great sense of humor. And she goes, my child, you too? The man asked Natalie's mom if she was ready to die. They were surrounded by the bodies of her children and grandchildren. Natalie's mom asked to pray with him first. After that... Mom had a special way to hug her children by just pinching you and look at you and touch your cheeks and say, my child, he did that to the killer. I was not happy. I said, Mom, you're about to be killed. You're giving him our hugs. But it took me years to actually forgive my mother for calling 
the kids, the children, and the grandchildren, and her child. But she did forgive her mom, and her mom's killers, and herself. Today, 25 years after the genocide, Natalie still bears the pain of losing the family that she loved so much. It's every day it's like it was yesterday, Michelle. She finds peace by reading verses of the Bible every day. Among her favorites is Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To many people, this makes no sense. But to me, it does. Because when he died, he promised a place in his father's kingdom. That's the only way I can live in this life. It's through Christ's suffering and Mary's suffering and pain in the word of God. I will invite the entire world, you don't have to listen to me, to find Jesus. Without Jesus, how do you find hope? How do you find peace? How do you dare believe in forgiveness? Natalie still feels the loss of her mother and her siblings, her cousins and nieces and nephews, every single day. But she trusts that they are with God and she will be reunited with them one day. I'm sorry I lost them, but I didn't lose my faith. It's everything. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle LaRosa. Hey guys, it's me, JD, again. I promise we'll get to our next story of forgiveness in just one second. But first, do you subscribe to CNA Newsroom? It's easy and it's free. When you subscribe, every new episode of CNA Newsroom will be delivered directly to you, even our somewhat weird bonus episodes. Search for CNA Newsroom wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't listen to a lot of podcasts, just open your phone and look for the app that's called Podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and many others. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. That will help other people find our podcast and help us get better. We're going to go back to our stories about forgiveness. But here's the deal with this next segment. It's about sexual abuse. The story does not contain graphic descriptions of sexual abuse, but it does deal with the topic. And that may not be appropriate if you have your kids listening. Listener discretion is advised. An explosive report alleging a cover-up of Catholic priest sex abuses dating back decades. The abuse is far too graphic to describe in detail. A monster who preyed on innocent children. It is literal torture, soul-murdering torture every day. Nobody should live like this with this pain. You tell yourself lies that you're not good enough. You tell yourself lies that Maybe you're better off not being on the earth today. Okay, so I'm Miguel Prats, and I was born in Houston. I'm 66 years old. I live in Katy, Texas now, and I'm a survivor of abuse by a priest and a survivor of abuse by non-clergy. Around 2001, Miguel got involved in SNAP, 
the survivor's network of those abused by priests. He was an active member for several years, but he was looking for healing, and he didn't find that with Snap. And a big reason for that was that Miguel wanted to stay in the church. He wanted to remain a Catholic, even after what happened. A lot of people in Snap couldn't understand that and uh, were very negative towards me. And while Miguel was certainly angry about what happened to him, he didn't want to be. Justifiable anger is still anger. And it, it'll cause you to, you know, get sick. I mean, I know people that uh, died from cancer, but what really killed them was stress. Seeking something different after two years involved with SNAP, Miguel was inspired by the 12-step models of other groups he was going to to deal with issues he was facing at the time. Around 2004, he wondered if that model could help him heal spiritually as well as physically. Uh, I took that and refined it and made it Catholic, and that's where the inspiration came. Miguel approached Father Gavin Vivarek, who at the time was in charge of the Diocese of Tyler's Safe Environment Programs. Father Vivarek arranged a meeting between Miguel and the bishop, who asked him to help Miguel start this new lay apostolate. Father Vivarek is now the spiritual director for the Maria Goretti Network. When I attend a meeting, it's just as a participant, as somebody who cares about people that have been abused, not to provide spiritual expertise, but Oftentimes, before or after the meeting, somebody will say, Father, do you have a minute for confession? Uh, Father, can we do the anointing of the sick? A lot of survivors of abuse go through a period where the anointing of the sick can be very helpful to them because the, the wound of the person is so deep from the abuse that the, the grace of healing sacraments can be very helpful. Here's what one of their meetings looks like. We open with prayer. Uh, we, meet, we only meet once a month, but we meet for an hour and a half. And it's amazing the progress that can be made just meeting for an hour and a half once a month. But And then we go around the room and everybody introduces themselves, if they want to. Then the men and women separate. This is a big thing, a big difference between us and AA and NA. The men and women separate. When we separate, we're, we have more freedom to really say what we want to say. Then we come back together and then we discuss ways to forgive. Forgiveness is key to recovery. And then we end with prayer. That's how it goes every time. Miguel says people who attend Maria Goretti Network meetings have told him that keeping the sexes separate is helpful for them. But what they like most about the meetings is the emphasis on forgiveness. And we use models like St. Maria Goretti, St. Josephine Baquita, and St. Maximilian Colby, we used them as models on how to forgive the unforgivable. Maria Goretti was born into a poor family in Italy in 1890. Her father died when she was six, and Maria, the third of seven children, helped her mother with the housework. You know, I read this story, and this little girl wasn't even 12 years old. A guy who should have been like her big brother protecting her and helping her, attacked her. A family friend and neighbor, Alessandro Serenelli, tried to rape her. 
and when she resisted... He stabbed her 14 times. Innocent little girl. And uh, she lived for 24 hours in the hospital. So, you know, the priest came. And cause she was known for being a holy little girl and sweet and everything. And, you know, the priest said, Maria, do you forgive him? And she said, of course I forgive him. I want him to be in heaven with me. Even as Maria lay dying, she forgave her would-be rapist. She died soon after, and Alessandro, who was viciously unrepentant at first, went to jail. He had a dream that Maria was giving him 14 white lilies, one for each time he had stabbed her, that burst into flame. He understood at once that the flame symbolized forgiveness. Alessandro converted to Catholicism while in prison, and when he was released, he became a gardener at a monastery, dedicating the rest of his life to helping others. He later stood by Maria's mother at her daughter's beatification. And so between Maria and Alessandro Serenelli, we have an incredible example of forgiveness and repentance and, and turning one's life around. We're only concerned with getting people to, to heaven and to be in with Jesus, to give them hope, to show them how it could be done. The Maria Goretti Network now has chapters across the U.S., but most are still located in Texas. The meetings aren't just for survivors of abuse by clergy. When people come to our group, they're hurting. You know, they want somebody to listen to them and believe them, or for any victim of abuse, no matter who did it or what form it took. But after all this time, has Miguel found what he needed to heal from his abuse? I've been working with victims for almost 20 years now, and, um, you know, I'm really happy to say that today I'm happy, and I'm at peace, and I feel great. Although many older cases of abuse are coming to light, Studies repeatedly show that victims of sexual abuse are reluctant to come forward, even years later. What I tell survivors all the time, and especially people that call me and they're like, I don't know if I should say anything to the church or the cops, or I tell them, look, when victims come forward, children are protected. You really should come forward. I understand if you're not ready today, but there's this stigma of shame and and fear and especially for guys you know guys don't want to admit this especially latinos pope francis issued new guidelines a few weeks ago for the reporting of sexual abuse in the church to a mixed reaction from survivors we the laity have to ask and in some cases demand accountability and transparency Sadly, too many times our bishops have failed us. Yeah, you know, people are coming forward. People are learning that, you know, it's okay to speak up. Uh, and they're getting help, but, but the focus is on healing the mind and not the soul. And so what we in Maria Grady Network do is we 
share experiences that happened to us and we share how we have dealt with it and you know when we've had success we share that in the hopes that somebody else might hear something that helps them for cna newsroom i'm jonah mckeown Now, here's CNA Newsroom's Kate Vike with a story about a journalist who was beheaded by ISIS and a mom who decided to forgive. August 19th, 2014. The Islamic State uploads a video to YouTube. In the video, a man in an orange jumpsuit kneels beside a masked man dressed in all black. There's nothing behind them except sand and the horizon. The man on his knees reads a message. I call on my friends, family, and loved ones to rise up against my real killers, the U.S. government. For what will happen to me is only a result of their complacency and criminality. After more forced propaganda, the man in black speaks. He says his prisoner is James Foley, an American journalist who went missing in northern Syria nearly two years earlier. He says James is going to die. And he says more people will die if the United States government does not stop its attacks on the Islamic State. Then he beheads James Foley. The video was quickly removed from YouTube for violating company guidelines, but not before people were able to capture and tweet several screenshots. While James was killed in the sand, Diane Foley was at her home in New Hampshire, more than 5,000 miles away. She remembers when the phone rang. It was a reporter from the Associated Press. This young woman on the phone crying, asking me if I had seen the video on Twitter. So of course I went on Twitter and um, saw the horrific photographs of Jim's beheading and was in shock, total shock. That's how I found out. This is the story of Diane Foley and her choice to forgive the men who kidnapped and brutally executed her son, Jim. Diane and her husband John raised five children in rural New Hampshire off the banks of Lake Winnipesaukee. Jim was their oldest. Diane tells me her son Jim was thoughtful. He was an avid reader. Jim prioritized service and volunteering from a young age. He was an altar boy. In college, he was a tutor for kids in inner-city Milwaukee. He spent several years working for Teach for America in Phoenix, He tutored single moms in Massachusetts to help them earn their GEDs. He taught English to young felons in Chicago. Initially, he got his master's in creative writing. And then... He decided, I want to write real stories about real people. And that's when he applied to Medill Northwestern and got his master's in journalism. For Diane, journalism was a great fit for Jim. He, he had the most um, adventurous spirit initially. 
Jim was always very curious, very interested in other people's stories. He was a very good listener, which I think is always a good trait in a journalist and a friend. Um, Jim had many, many friends, I think, because of his ability to really listen and care. Um, but it also helped him as a journalist because he really wanted to hear a person's um, other story. Jim was interested in conflict journalism, in part because some of his siblings were in the military. Jim embedded with the Indiana National Guard in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. And it really wasn't until the Arab Spring um, when he chose to become a freelancer. Jim really had found what gave his life a lot of meaning, actually. He felt compelled to give voice to the people suffering, um, particularly in Libya and um, Syria, and um, became very passionate about it. He, he just loved it. It, it suited him well in many ways. for Global Post, reporting from Benghazi, Libya. You know, it was difficult. It was difficult to see Jim wanting to do this dangerous work. But the truth is, at the beginning of it, I really didn't realize how dangerous it was. I had no idea how um, risky it is to be a freelancer. We were so delighted Jim had found something he loved that we, um, you know, um, were very proud of him and encouraged um, his work initially. But I think he was most challenged when he was first kidnapped in Libya, the beginning of Lent, oddly enough. It was April 2011. Jim was trying to get to the front line of conflict in Libya with three other journalists. They were approached by Gaddafi forces. One of Jim's colleagues was shot and killed. Jim and two others were taken hostage and held for six weeks. During that captivity, I think that was very, I know that was very frightening for everyone, for us, but certainly for him also. And um, he would tell us when he came back, but also told the community of students at Marquette when he visited that he used his fingers to count the rosary. And um, he really found some solace in his faith. Diane says she and the rest of Jim's family and friends became very concerned. And I remember asking Jim, you know, saying, Jim, I mean, you have two masters, you could teach, you could do anything you want, you know, you know, maybe it's time to do something different. And he, and he said that, Ma, I found my passion. Um, I need to do this. So he really had found something he felt very passionate about. Diane doesn't remember the specifics of what Jim was working on in Syria in 2012. She remembers he spent a lot of energy covering the bombings of hospitals in Aleppo, 
Jim did a lot of work on on that, um, showing what was going on. At one point, he got several of his colleagues to get together to um, raise funds to buy an ambulance because people were just bringing um, wounded in cars or wheelbarrows, anything they had. It was just a horrible scene. But also spent a lot of time talking to um, young people and men and women who were seeking their freedom. He was very taken by their courage that they would risk everything to be free. Diane got the call on Thanksgiving Day of 2012. A few of Jim's colleagues were on the other end of the line. They had been waiting for Jim at the border between Turkey and Syria. Jim never showed. We never heard his voice again. We never heard from him. So it was a horrific time. It was just initially FBI told us not to tell anybody. They felt that was the best way for us to handle it. So all through the holidays, we shared this with nobody except our family and Jim's closest friends. But by January of 2013, we went public just so we could beg the world to help us find Jim. Diane quit her job to devote herself full time to petitioning for help from the U.S. government. In the meantime, the Foley's received some reports about Jim. A Belgian teenager said he had seen Jim in a prison in northern Syria. Another young man heard the name James Foley in a prison. And the days, weeks, and months passed. All the while, Diane prayed. I just prayed so hard that he was feeling close to God himself. I, I just knew he needed God's strength, and I just prayed so hard for Jim to be strong and to be close to his God. And actually, it was odd. He, he well, not really, another God instance, I think, that, you know, finally at one point, I just truly in the Adoration Chapel just surrendered Jim, and it was shortly after that he died. The Islamic State beheaded Jim after about two years in captivity. It was awful. Um, It's not the right word. It was very difficult. Diane says she and her family relied heavily on friends, family, and their parish. Her pastor, Father Paul, remembers coming to Diane's house the night he first heard about Jim. Here's Father Paul. I remember the night that we all found out what had happened to Jim. And I went to the house and I spent some time with the Foley's. And, you know, just before I went out, Diane gave me a big hug and she said, Father, please pray for me. I don't want to hate. That was a, that was a pretty profound statement. Diane says that though she wanted to forgive and knew she needed to forgive, it still took time. Well, it certainly was not an immediate reaction. My grief was too deep. Um, But I, I really think I was challenged to that, partly through my faith, um, because God is merciful and forgiving. 
So certainly our faith teaches us and challenges us uh, to the necessity of seeking forgiveness and a forgiving heart. It's a decision. It's the decision to ask God to help you have a forgiving heart. People are, are very confused about forgiveness and unforgiveness because I think oftentimes people associate their forgiveness with their feelings and one has nothing to do with the other because forgiveness is an act of the will. It doesn't have to feel good, you just have to do it. I I do think it helps if you're able to talk to the person who has hurt you. Um, and help would help hugely if they were moved to ask forgiveness. But of course, a lot of times that's not the case at all. It certainly hasn't been the case for Diane. None of the men who kidnapped or killed her son have come to trial. It has been nearly five years since Jim's death. In that time, Diane and her family launched the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation to advocate for the safe return of Americans taken hostage or unjustly detained abroad. And Diane continues to choose to forgive her son's killers, day after day, week after week, year after year. Life is short and we need to spend it learning to forgive and love. Um, I think if we dwell on our hearts, we lose a lot of joy and we certainly move away from our God. Our God is a merciful God. He's a God who forgives us continually. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Bike. That's our show for today. You have been listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you great stories and the people behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. And I hope that if there are people in your life you're struggling to forgive, these stories might have helped. Keep at it. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to all of our guests. It takes a lot of courage to share these stories with us. We hope we did them justice, and we appreciate you being with us. See you next week.